I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com, where I'll always keep you updated on what I'm up to. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. Today's sponsor is Unsweetened NYC, which was started by a woman named Nora Niderman, a 45-year-old designer and mom of two boys and a New York native. They specialize in a variety of high-end tanks and tees that range from $95 to $150, which I know is a lot, but they're really awesome. Uh, And they're all about being a badass mom. And their mission is to empower women while wearing their statement pieces, which are just awesome. So whether you're laughing or crying, they say, whispering or screaming, succeeding or failing, full of love or annoyed AF, we have you covered. (laughs) So that's Unsweetened NYC. They sent me these two adorable tank tops um, and not tank tops. Well, the kind where the sleeves are cut off, but the rest of it is there, not tank, like um, sleeveless shirts. Anyway, uh, and they're really awesome. And I love supporting women-owned brands like this. So go check out Unsweetened NYC. Maya Shan Long is the author of What We Carry, a memoir, and also The 16th of June, a novel. Lang's work has been featured in the New York Times, The Observer, The Washington Post, The Philadelphia Inquirer, and InStyle, among others. The 16th of June was long listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and was an Audi Award finalist for Best Audiobook. Recipient of the 2017 Neil Shepard Prize in Fiction, Lang has received support from the Rona Jaffe Foundation and from Breadloaf. Her short work has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. After graduating magna cum laude from Swarthmore College, she earned her master's from New York University and her PhD in comparative literature from SUNY Stony Brook. A passionate teacher, she loves working with aspiring writers. Lang is the daughter of Indian immigrants and lives outside New York City. Thanks, Maya, for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me, Zibby. It is an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Oh, you too. And I know when we did our Instagram Live, I hadn't had a chance to finish your book yet. And I was like, I'm loving it so much. We have to continue this. So I'm glad I had time to read the whole book. And now here we are so we can have a proper conversation. <laughs> and I'm so glad I did because it's it's so good. Your book is so good. And it started off great and kept right on. Sometimes books, you know, they can start off great and then not continue on. But this was from start to finish, such a pleasure. So congratulations on writing it and all the rest. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So for people who might not be familiar with your book yet, can you please explain what what We Carry is about and what inspired you to write it? Yeah. So what we carry is about my relationship with my mother. And I never intended to write a memoir. I was in the middle of working on my second novel when my mother was in need of emergency care and I brought her home to live with me. And I started writing these Facebook posts because my life changed so dramatically overnight. You know, I was raising my young daughter. My mom, who had dementia, was suddenly in my house. I was also trying to further my career as a writer. And it was a lot and it was overwhelming. And I just didn't know what I was suddenly in the middle of. And being able to just write a little post about an anecdote or about an episode with her or a little conversation we'd had was just a way of wrapping my mind around my experience. I couldn't tell the whole story, but I could tell these little anecdotes that just gave me a couple of lines and made me feel like I had some sort of grip on my situation. And an editor happened to see my posts and reached out to my agent and said, I think there's a memoir here. 
And I thought, oh my God, I could never write a memoir. And that same day I wrote, I think, 70 pages. Oh my gosh. So it was clear that I did have all of this stuff sort of pent up in me that I needed to say. And I think I kind of hadn't given myself permission to really talk about it freely. And a lot of the material, as you know, is not so much about the day-to-day of caregiving. It really gets into who I thought she was versus who she turned out to be and the illusions that I was carrying around in my head about her life and our relationship and reconciling the past and the present. And it almost was like, as readers, we got to go through the process of your discovering all these things with you. Because the way that you kind of slowly dropped in your discoveries of some of the things that your mother hadn't told you were like just like huge shocks to us. And you could see, like, I could read you being shocked. And then I was sitting there shocked. And it was like a whole thing. (laughs) But in the moment when some of these things were happening, and I don't want to give anything away, and some of them aren't like life altering major revelations, but just anything that you take as fact about your parent when it turns out, or your own family, when it turns out not to be true, every the whole, you know, the foundation kind of rattles a little bit. How did you deal with each one of these little things as it chipped away at you? How did you, aside from writing about it, what were some of the things that you did to process those, those moments in your life? I mean, I think writing was the main thing, to be honest. My way of processing any experience has always been through writing. And what I think is maybe unique about this memoir is that I wrote it in real time. You know, it's not as though I had years later and was that kind of removed from the experience and looked back and reflected. So I think if it has the kind of feel of like a, you know, suspenseful, story or a detective story or something. Like, I think that's because I was sort of piecing together my life and these realizations as they were unfolding. And, you know, my other kind of coping mechanism besides writing was, of all things, weightlifting, which I talk about in the book. I needed some sort of outlet because I knew that if I didn't give that to myself, I would just succumb to the pressure and it would, you know, I wouldn't be able to be there for my daughter or for my mom. So I began weightlifting and I basically just, you know, fitness was completely missing from my life. I had like no relationship to my body at all. My whole world was just like in my head between my ears. And I went to the gym and I I just decided that I didn't want the experience of fitness to be a negative one. I didn't want it to be about weight loss or punishment or, oh, you know, I was bad the other day when I ate a brownie, so I have to make up for it now. I didn't want any of that. I wanted something that just felt like a complete release and weightlifting gave that to me. And it ended up becoming this real metaphor for all that I was carrying around and, you know, weightlifting for me became this sort of exercise, not in picking up heavy weights, but in finally setting them down and giving myself permission to do that. And so I found it and continue, although in 
quarantine. <laughs> of course, I'm not going to the gym, but it has become a nearly spiritual practice for me, I would say. Now you're just like lifting up your sofas. I'm going <laughs> you're gonna walk around, you know, little like side tables go up in the air as we do our Skype, you know. <laughs> nothing nothing's heavy enough. You're you're lifting like hundreds of pounds. So it's like you gotta, gotta get a piano in there or something. <laughs> but I loved your relationship with your trainer in the book too. What did, it's Todd Isms. Is it was it his name is Todd or did I mess that up? His name is Lewis. Lewis, Lewisism, sorry. Lewisisms and how he had all these expressions that you took to heart and had like 500 meanings in one and were also about life. And then how at the end you realize he reminded you so much of your dad, which that one I kind of did see coming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But even though the the book was mostly about your mom, I felt like a lot of it was about sorting out your feelings about your relationship with your dad at the same time. Do you want to talk a little about, if you don't mind, I know it was a very difficult relationship for you, but how writing the book helped you sort through what happened with him? Yeah. So my father was just a difficult person. He was controlling and rigid. He had a lot of ideas about women and girls and our place in life. And he would say these things to me from a very young age about how I was worthless and girls, you know, aren't meant to contribute to society. And he just was very matter of fact about it. Like he wasn't, it wasn't some like hidden thing that seeped out subtly. It was very open. And yeah, specifically, he was very controlling when it came to my body. So he didn't want me to be an athlete when I was a child. He, when I started physically maturing, he would, you know, rip up my leggings or anything that he thought was tight. And he would get upset with me and punish me if, you know, someone gave me attention, like a stranger on the street whistled at me, he would punish me. So it was interesting when I was writing the memoir, I remember this moment when my editor said to me, you know, we need a little bit about your dad. And I was so scared to write about him. And any time that I tried to, this will sound so bizarre, but I would literally break out into hives when I went to write about him. And specifically, I would get hives across my feet. And I thought, God, what is this? And the minute I stopped trying to write about him, you know, the hives would disappear. So it was very related to that act. And one day as I was sitting at my laptop, just like sitting with my discomfort, I had this flashback where I remembered being very young and my father had found a crayon of mine under the couch and he turned livid. And he sent me out to our driveway in the summer. It was July. And he told me to stand barefoot on the driveway. And I wasn't allowed to hop between feet or go on the grass. And that memory came back to me. You know, it had been in my body, which is why I was getting those hives. And so writing about that was so cathartic and freeing. And it helped me process these memories that I didn't even know I was carrying around inside of me. And, you know, as kids, we just grow up in whatever soil we have, whatever environment we have. We don't really think about it. And I think kids are remarkable 
and miraculous for this reason is we just find ways to thrive, like flowers between the cracks in the sidewalk, you know? And so I had never thought of myself as having a particularly rough childhood. Like I went to great schools. I was really close with my mom. And so I certainly never thought of myself as having been abused at all. So to have that vantage point as a grown-up and as a parent myself, to be able to look back and say, oh, that happened and I never gave it thought and now I can, you know, that was really powerful. And I think for a lot of people who've grown up in dysfunctional homes or with difficult parents, I think a lot of times what we tell ourselves is, oh, whatever happened wasn't that bad. Other people have it so much worse. Other kids have it so much worse. And I think to come out of that stance and instead of trying to kind of put him on a spectrum of, well, how bad was he? To instead just kind of claim my story and say, this is what happened. That freed me from being under a spell. Wow. So much power in just being able to retell the story, like to yourself, to us. I mean, all those nights when he would take you and make you run and work. I mean, your whole relationship to the fact that you're such an athlete and how he would make you run and run and run and you got stress fractures. And I mean, it was, I mean, reading it, it, it was sort of horrifying. I mean, my daughter would kill me if I touched her favorite leggings. Like that's like the littlest, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I have an almost 13 year old. It's like, that's like the tiniest piece. But even that, you know, I could see the ripples of, let alone all the physical stuff. And anyway, I'm so glad it helped you to get that out of your system. I mean, imagine if you hadn't have written written about it. What if you had just kept going with your novel? Right, exactly. And, you know, so I think the two things for me, writing was incredibly cathartic. And yeah, in a strange way, going to the gym and working out with Lewis, who is roughly, you know, not too far from my father's age. So to work out with someone who was in a position of authority and who's older than I am, who encouraged me and never had a negative word to say, that I think accomplished more than therapy because it put me back in my body in an empowering way. And that was so healing. Wow. This whole journey, I feel like I got to like perch on your shoulder as you completely like rehabilitate yourself in this book, (laughs) including, by the way, just all the terrible stuff that people go through when they have new babies. I mean, you wrote so beautifully about postpartum depression and that just, oh, the, not only the despair, but that once you got medication and you woke up one morning and it was just, you were like, oh, I'm me again. Like even that part of your story was so powerful. And the fact that you were holding yourself up to a standard that you didn't even realize was unattainable until later, right? Against your mother. I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot. And the funny thing is, you know, we talk about all this and it sounds so heavy. You know, when your book gets published and you receive it one day, like it shows up at your doorstep and you have it in hardcover and you flip through it. I was kind of looking through it thinking like, oh, it's funny that there's such short sections. And I think part of what it is, is that like, even though I was writing about these big, heavy things, I was in crisis as I was writing it, you know, because I was caring for my mother around the clock. I was trying to be there for my daughter 
So I wrote this book. Literally, I would like take 15 minutes and like hide in my bedroom closet or like, and just try and get one little chapter done um, and then come back. And so I think because I was in it while writing it, I didn't have the emotional bandwidth or capacity to write a long narrative. You know, I sort of had to take it one little piece at a time. So I think that helped me through the writing. But it it helped through the reading too. I mean, so many of your sections, like that's how people are consuming books these days anyway, right? We're the ones running off to the closet to read for two minutes or 10 minutes. I I thought the short chapters were part of what made the book so effective. There were like scenes, like you're in a, it's like, it was very visual too. Like you're in a scene, you're in the doctors, you're with your brother, you're, and you go back and forth. I don't know. I thought it was really neat. How does this type of writing, I haven't read your novel. How does this type of writing compare to your novel? Or if you're going back to that other one, your next novel, like, do you write in the same way or is it, how would you compare it? It's so different. It's such an interesting question. I think part of it is that when I was writing fiction without realizing it, I had always been really writing about these things. You know, the the father whose love is unavailable, the mother who is mythic. And I'd been circling these themes. I just didn't know it. I didn't realize that I was revealing myself through my fiction. And one difference I will say is that when you're writing fiction, you have to kind of give yourself over to the artifice of it. You know, you are creating this whole alternate universe with characters and a setting. And your goal as a writer is to kind of erase yourself out of the picture and just put the reader into that world. And with memoir, the interesting thing is that you can reflect as you're writing on the process as you're doing it. So I think knowing now what that's like, I mean, that requires a lot more vulnerability and it's scarier to do. Um, it also just allowed me and enabled me to kind of get real in a way that I really hadn't done before. So it was much more difficult, I think, but also having experienced that, I don't know that I could go back to writing fiction. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I think to tap into your heart and really go there, I think that's where we can offer so much value to ourselves and to the reader and and just to the writing process in terms of like what we're trying to accomplish to really kind of get at the truth of things. And And yet the problem is that sometimes what we want to write about in our hearts involves other people. (laughs) Like, yes, your mother had passed away when this came out, but maybe she didn't pass away. She's still alive. She's still alive. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I made that mistake. No, no, no. It's okay. One of the things I think about a lot is that I think with Alzheimer's, there's kind of a double grief. Like you lose the person through the disease because they slowly, you know, as their sense of self fades away, as their memories fade away, you're left with this kind of shell of a person. So there's that grief. And then later when the person actually passes away, of course, there's the second grief. So yeah, my mother is still alive, but I often refer to her in the past tense. So anyone listening to me, you know, you're it's completely understandable to like think that she has passed away because 
in my mind, when I talk about her, I'm always talking about who she was to me. In some ways, the person I go and, well, of course, right now I can't go and visit her during the quarantine, but the person I would visit and now the person I talk to on the phone is an imposter. It's not her at all. Wow. And in the book, you know, I, I reflect on this, but I still kind of don't know how to talk about her. I don't know if I should use past tense verbs or present tense verbs. It's this awkward sort of in limbo purgatory of being where on one hand she's alive, but even saying that feels kind of inaccurate because she's not really herself. She's not really alive as she would have wanted to be alive. So that's just, you know, it's an interesting place. I almost sent you. And then I was like, how can I send you an article? You're like such an amazing author yourself. But there was an op-ed, I feel like in the New York Times this weekend by somebody whose mother had just passed away from Alzheimer's. And she describes it exactly the way you did. I'm going to find it and send it to you. I'll put it in the show Please notes. Please do. This. Yeah. But it's exactly that, how she wasn't, she didn't know how to describe and the person isn't alive anymore. And yet, anyway, so, <laughs> but now I feel terrible. I'm sorry. I'm glad. I mean, anyway. Sorry for the misunderstanding. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. So if you don't think you can go back to fiction, are you working on anything new or are you just like deep into the you know virtual promotion of this book, which you should be you know enjoying and taking your time doing? So no pressure by this question, but <laughs> just wondering. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a, at a crossroads in terms of what to do next writing-wise. You know, definitely my life has not been the same since writing this memoir. I think anyone who writes a memoir, you really hold up not just any mirror to your life, but like a 360 degree mirror to your life. And your life can change quite dramatically as, you know, as a result of that. So, yeah, it could be that there are essays or another nonfiction book in my future, but I'm not quite sure. I know you had posted on an Instagram post that I had said when I was feeling very sad when my kids were with their dad because I'm divorced and remarried, but I still five years later have uh, have trouble when they go to their dad sometimes and I just, you know, get so sad. And you responded that you had been, you were separated as well. And I was sort of sad to hear that, especially having read the book. I was like, oh no. <laughs> so has that affected Anything with the release or your time now or how you see the writing process of it or anything? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I will say that separating was the best thing to have done. And I'm so proud of myself for having done it. And my life now is a hundred times better. So I say that partly to anyone listening, because I remember when I was in my marriage and I was thinking about separating, it just seemed terrifying. And I thought, oh my gosh, what would my life be like? And I sort of imagined myself miserable and struggling. And I didn't know that I would emerge on the other side and be thriving. So it's a happy ending in that sense. Part of what I talk about in the memoir is that with my mother, I had always described her growing up and through college and, you know, in my 20s, I described her as the perfect mother and as this wonderful person. And she and I were so close. And later I realized that because I had such an awful father, 
I kind of needed my mother to make up for him. So I was deeply invested in her being this fabulous parent, even though I had to do quite a bit of like (laughs) twisting of logic and facts to see her that way. So I would always describe her as this wonderful parent, even though she didn't necessarily always do things to warrant that. And even when she could be quite sort of absent and negligent, I always found ways to think of her choices as being in my best interest. But really it was this illusion. And it was a similar thing I did with my husband, where in the book, I describe him as being wonderful and supportive Even though one thing my editor kept saying to me when she was reading this, she would say, well, where's your husband in all of this? Like, you seem so alone as you're dealing with motherhood and postpartum depression and your mother's Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, you you sound so isolated. And I think there are actually a lot of women who feel that way in their marriages where you're with someone and on paper you have a partner. And, you know, for me, at least, especially compared to how my father had been, my husband did seem incredibly supportive and wonderful because by the yardstick I was accustomed to, you know, like the absence of violence, the absence of a temper, the absence of, you know, verbal and emotional abuse. I just thought, oh, this is great. This is support. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it really, you know, writing the memoir really caused me to re-examine not just my marriage, but a lot of my relationships and patterns in ways that are ultimately very healthy now. You know, like I gained so much. It's just a difficult process. You are going to have like the best next five to 10 years. I I feel like you are going to do a complete 360 on everything in your life. And I am like, you know, I hope you continue to write about it. So people who, you know, are not in the, in your inner circle (laughs) can watch because like, it's like, you just finally like took off this whole protective layer and now you're like, in it, it will be fun if you can write about it to, to be a bystander and watch (laughs) as as you take (laughs) off. (laughs) Do you have any advice for aspiring authors now that we're nearing the end of our little chat here? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing I would say is, first of all, the most important thing with writing is to just write. And we find so many reasons and so many ways to not write because we tell ourselves that we are not good enough or what has happened in our lives to warrant, you know, writing about. So I kind of think, I almost imagine writing as like a chariot with two horses in front. Plato had this whole theory about the human soul being a chariot with two horses. So there's like the horse that should be the weaker horse, but it's actually the stronger one, which is self-criticism. And then there's the other horse, which should be the stronger one, but it's the weaker one, which is our instincts as writers. And so I think if you can find ways to like recalibrate the horses to, to tame the self-critic, that it doesn't take over and to feed your instincts, to bring them more to the forefront, that's how the writing moves forward. And I think when you hear that voice pop up that says, who do you think you are to be trying to write? Or, you know, what do you think you're playing at? However that voice speaks to you, to just recognize it and say, oh, that's that horse 
taking over when it doesn't deserve to and sort of put it in its place. And then when like the little voice speaks up inside that says like, oh, I wonder if I could write about that to really like give that all of the carrots and feed it and yield to that. I think that's how the writing actually comes out onto the page. And to any writer out there, I would say, you know, I didn't, I never got an MFA. I had zero connections in the publishing world. You have a PhD in in comparative literature. (laughs) Yeah, but all the people I was studying were all dead. (laughs) (laughs) It counts. I think that counts, but okay, fine. I knew how to read novels, but I didn't really think I could write one. And yeah, I think to just go for it, just keep finding, even if it's only 10 minutes in your bedroom closet, but to keep finding little islands of time where you just get stuff on paper. That's the most important thing. That's great. Well, thank you, Maya. Thanks so much for coming on Mom's Time to Read Books and for sharing your story with all of us. I can't wait to see what happens next for you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sibby. It's been a pleasure. Okay, you too. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Unsweetened NYC for partnering with us today and for making such badass shirts for women. Many badasses I know are listening now and they need a uniform, so there you go. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Mm-hmm.